0: Sarah Hefler.
1: Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. Hey, congratulations. Uh, you have a story in the free press today.
0: I do. She was very cool. Um, Representative Lori Schlegel from Louisiana, who um, I think they gave it the title something like, um, you know, legislature takes on the porn industry and wins. And, and I have to say, however you feel about, um, um, you know, if you're a free speech absolutist, it's a problem when you try to put in any sort of barriers to kids watching porn, in this case an age restriction. However, she's had some pretty good luck and she's sort of the first person that has. Um, and uh, the porn industry's not happy about it and they're fighting it. Uh, it's an interesting fight. I found her to be very interesting person. Um, I liked her a lot. She's down there in Metairie, Louisiana. So yeah, if you get a chance, we'll put a link in the show notes. Go ahead over and write it. So yeah, this is an interesting hit.
1: story. And we've talked about this before. And I'm real mixed up on this, you know, because I don't like the idea of, of regulating free speech, but I do think there is something really uh like creepy and dangerous about the the access that young people have. And so I'm very curious how this is gonna, gonna go.
0: So I, I really the reason we've invited our talented and lovely and extremely prolific guest on here today, Kat Rosenfield. Welcome to Smoke If You Got him. We really just asked you here so we can talk about my work. So, that, uh, yeah. Oh,
2: yeah. You don't no, mind, not right? No, all, Nancy. No. I love talking ha- about your work.
0: <laughs> How do you feel about kids' um, access to online porn? Uh, grateful that it's not something that I've ever really had to think about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in any case, she, she put some age restriction laws. Basically, you got to stick your, your, prove your age online and it's getting a lot of fight. And I understand it as someone who writes for reason and who pretty much, you know, believes that people should, um, have access to what they want. Uh, and also there's these things called parental controls. Um, but in any case, we're not here to talk about that. We are here today with our lovely guest, Kat Rosenfield, who um, really basically makes the rest of us just weep into our word processors, though we don't have word processors anymore, because, because you write so damn much and so damn well, Kat Gosh, Rosenfield. Gosh, thank you/I'm you, slash, I'm sorry. <laughs> i think sarah um we should we should be completely transparent here and say we did try to record with kat a few days ago and we had um multiple technical issues so sarah maybe you want to read your intro and we'll we'll pretend it's fresh and like we've never heard it before you've never
1: heard this before guys (laughs) this is the first time yes um Kat Rosenfield is one of those wildly clever and prolific writers. I like to joke about envying, but the truth is, I'm just really glad she's around. She is a columnist for Unheard, where she writes about pop culture, feminism, and sex, among other things. And she is the co host of the Feminine Chaos podcast. She began her journalism career at MTV News and has gone on to write for Vulture, The New York Times, Reason, and She is the author of four novels, including the thriller No One Will Miss Her, which was nominated for an Edgar Award last year, and her latest You Must Remember This, which I read over the weekend, and I gobbled it up like a Snickers bar. And I want to add that she is very good at Twitter. Kat Rosenfield, welcome to Smoke Missingada. I'm so happy to be here. Again. By the way, I said that you were really great at Twitter, which you are. I think that you have, um, you know, this wonderful balance of funniness and also kind of um, you, you You don't stay away from kind of like civilly disagreeing with people. I, I like the way that you interact. Um, but am I correct that you got temporary temporarily banned I recently? I
2: posted um, because I posted oh. something violent. I I. Uh... I had, at one of my less restrained moments, I told a man to go jump in a lake. (laughs) How dare you? And um, apparently, I don't know. I don't know if the algorithm caught me or if this guy is just like the world's biggest pussy, excuse me, but I'm sorry, that's... (laughs) 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 Uh, And reported me for uh, for encouraging self-harm. But yes, apparently telling someone to go jump in a lake is considered encouraging suicide or encouraging violence and um, this was news to me wow. because if you go on Twitter and you type like jumping in lake into the gif search, it will return uh, many many clips of what I guess are snuff films of people you know committing <laughs> committing mass suicide <laughs> leaping into lakes it looks like they're having a good time but now we know better. <laughs> Oh know. my
1: gosh! And and so, what happens? How do you find out that this has happened to you? Like, what happened on uh, your? You end? get an
2: email. that says your account has been suspended, and uh, I've only ever gotten one of these once before, and it was because of like a DCMa takedown thing where I had accidentally posted a video of myself doing yoga, and there was like a song playing in the background um, that I hadn't I hadn't realized. So, but yeah, this was this was a first for me getting banned for having been. Um, a Twitter abuser. I'm so ashamed and so mad because I had to delete it, and I was like, "But my pride, but my sense of justice. This is clearly ridiculous." But no, I had to to get my account back. I had to do it. Ugh. Go jump in a lake. It's it's such
1: a like old fashioned kind of thing to say. No, well, you know, right? I was
2: considering go fuck yourself, and then I was like, no, <laughs> that's not nice. <laughs>
0: Well, now you know in the future which one you should choose. I've been banned. I can't remember where it was, if it was Facebook a billion years ago, if it was Twitter a billion years ago. But I posted this awesome, incredible uh, photo of Debbie Harry. It's sort of this iconic photo where she's got on this white, very kind of sheer dress. It's kind of a Marilyn Monroe dress, and she's leaning forward, and you can see her, like, incredibly beautiful boobies. And they're so amazing the way that sort of, like – you know, just the nipples. There's not like, you can't really see it, but you definitely can see it. I thought, you know, if you were an alien from another planet and you didn't know what any of this was about, you would know exactly where to hone in. Like beep, beep, beep. They're just flashing at you. They're so amazing. Anyway, I put it because she's so beautiful. And then I got banned. It's like you can't. This really? Is How yeah. long
1: ago was that? This
0: was a while ago. Um, but I I got back. I did recently get hacked on Twitter, which yeah. I didn't know because I've been, you know, watching TV or something for a minute. Beside, instead of being on Twitter, and someone had taken over my account and posted. I mean, it was obviously a bot. Something like thirty six hundred posts. Wow. Um, all advertising, like the same thing, some sort of crypto. And I thought, well, I'm just because, of course, you complain to Twitter they don't do anything. And I thought, well, I'll just go in and I'll just delete them all. Well, yeah, good luck with that. I, I spent about a day doing that. And finally, um, I got control of my account. So if you go back, like about a month, you'll find 3,600 um, posts from me about a, a cryptocurrency that I obviously was very um, excited about. So, But yeah.
1: I'm now invested in crypto, and it's been working out really well for me. Are you? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Oh, I... I, I that, that you convinced me. Your, um, your crypto oh, that's, bot oh, convinced yes.
0: so, me. Hey, Kat, did you... Have you ever bought crypto? Have you ever? I don't even around? know how you would buy a crypto. I assume that
2: it's like a guy pulls up in a oh. van and he's like, "Hey kids, you want to buy some crypto?" <laughs> um, but I haven't You want to buy a watch? <laughs> some candy perhaps. Yeah, no. Um Yeah, no. The the guy the guy in the van um in my neighborhood only asks if you uh, want to touch his wiener, which I never do. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> you like I just wanted an ice cream I <laughs> just wanted crypto <laughs> um well I'm gonna then I'm gonna get some bragging rights here because a couple of years ago during the pandemic our good friend Michael Moynihan our our previous guest here he'd been playing around with it and I was like I don't know I'm gonna I'm, I just I had like a couple thousand dollars I'm like I'm gonna do it I invested something like seventy five hundred dollars well my timing was good and I wound up buying a car wow like Paying cash for a car with what I made and then even taking some other money out. And I still have about $3,000 in there, but I just let, I don't do anything with it now. But yeah, it was, I I am no genius at this stuff, but the timing was right. And um, yeah. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. Um, So Kat, let's talk about, well, let's start with your books. No, no, I don't want to start with your books. I want to ask you, tell us about how you started at MTV. Oh boy, that's uh that was such a long time ago. Um so I started at MTV.
2: This was like I think it was 2009 and um I was just trying to become a writer. I had decided to pivot from being a publicist into being a copywriter. Um and I was going to make this this change and I decided to make it Uh, about two months before the economy just imploded in 2008. So uh, bad timing on my part. So then I was just sort of frantically basically doing anything I could to get money and, and taking any writing job that paid no matter how little, which is how I ended up as a blogger for one of MTV's verticals. They used to have all of these blogs of all different topics. I wrote for the Hollywood Crush blog. I got paid $15 per post. To write about young Hollywood gossip. Um, So, Twilight was like my life, my whole life at that time. Um, And I did that for, I wanna say, it might have been three years or something like that. And then the blogs all folded, they shut them all down, but they took two people who had been bloggers for them over to the main news site and made them reporters. And I was one of them. So um, I, you know, then I got really, really lucky. And suddenly I I was an MTV news reporter. I'd always wanted to be one and now I was. <laughs> Were you on no. camera? No. Oh my God. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't like cameras. <gasps> I prefer to be in my cave oh. writing my words. Like-, <laughs> like the troll that I am. Um, and then
0: where did Sorry. you, where did you go where did you go from uh, from MTV? Um, so I got laid off in
2: uh, along with my entire team. I can't if it was the time that they pivoted to video or the time that they decided to just jettison everybody and bring over a bunch of writers from Grantland. It was a a media moment, one of those media moments. Um, And after I stopped working there, I was just freelancing, um, still doing a lot of entertainment writing. I had started writing for Vulture. I had a bunch of uh, gigs as a TV recapper, which I used to love to do, uh, writing for
0: Oh, I love
2: I loved Vulture your TV. did
1: has, still does really good uh television recaps.
2: What shows were you So recapping? I was actually a recapper for Us Weekly and Entertainment Weekly and I recapped oh, oh god, I recapped The Walking Dead. I did Outlander for a while. I did uh, American Horror Story for many many seasons. That was a blast. Um at the last recapping job I had actually it just ended last year. I was recapping Better Call Saul for Entertainment Weekly. Um mm. and I think I think that part of my life may be over, but it was so much fun. It was so much fun. I love watching TV, and
0: I love writing about watching TV. I love watching TV, too, and I loved reading your recaps. We started to know each other a couple of years ago, and that was one of the things that I would look forward to, even though I didn't watch the show. I didn't watch – I don't think I've ever seen Peter oh. Cole's so. But Well, I highly recommend. Um, um, speaking of TV, and poor Sarah is probably so sick of me talking about this, but have you watched Winning Time? Are you going
1: winning- to talk about Winning Time Stop again? Stop
0: it. Have you, have you been watching Winning Time? Yeah, yeah. My
2: husband's more obsessed with it than I am, like, but it's quite something.
0: Uh, it is unreal. And did you hear that they did not re-up it for the I heard. Season? I heard. I don't – I just – I don't get Should we observe a moment of silence? I don't get should I pour should one out up. this coffee? They're just yeah. – <laughs> I've got my orange soda here. I'm pouring it out. I think that's, I, 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 this show is like epiphonic for me. I watch it and I just feel like I'm just like thrust into it and just, I, I love every bit of it and the acting is amazing. Anyway, that's my, that's my show right now. But, um, and then another show I'm going to plug again, our listeners here are going to be like, uh, again, but Reservation Dogs, which my daughter, uh, works on and has for three seasons as the set decorator, they are ending voluntarily. This is the last season, and the final episode will be next Wednesday. And my daughter's in it again.
2: Oh, I'll nice. Put her,
0: they put her in front of the camera again. She's so, so beautiful. Uh, watch it. it! Oh, look who's talking. Yeah, uh, she, she's a she's a she does. She has that. Um, we we may wind up talking a little bit about beauty privilege, which is something that Sarah and I sometimes talk about. Um, okay. So then, you when did you start? Yeah, and then you also wrote. You wrote. Or maybe still will write more young adult novels. Yes. When did you start doing um, so that? So that
2: was okay. I had I had been laid off um, from my first attempt at a copywriting job in uh, I guess it was 2008 when everybody got laid off, and I could not find work for, you know to save my life. And um, sometime around like the I don't know the hundredth application that I sent out and got no response to, my husband who knew I was working on a novel said. Maybe you should just finish your book because nobody's going to hire you right now. Nobody's hiring anybody right now. You'll never have another opportunity mm-hmm. like this right. to focus on your on your writing. So maybe you should just do that. And so I did. That was, you know, that was what I what I did in the early part of that uh, the Great Recession, I guess they call it. And I ended up yeah. selling that book. That was Amelia Anne's Dead and Gone. It was my first YA novel. And from there, I did write. Another one called Inland that came out in 2014, and then I was working on a third one, but this was at the point at which things were starting to get a little weird in the young adult fiction community. Yes, and um, I I made the terrible. Can't tell us that story. <laughs> tell, tell us that story. I, I want to okay. hear that story. Okay, um, I'm <laughs> going to try to. Well,
1: and I want to I want to before you say this, I just want to say this is how I became aware of your work, because you wrote a big piece in 2017 Mm -hmm. for Vulture about the young adult fiction Twitter wars, which was a great piece. And that is that's where I came to know Kat Rosenfield's greatness. Um, so this was something you had kind of learned firsthand and then eventually reported on separately. But yeah, what was going on? So,
2: okay. Um, I want to say this is like the slightly longer version, but I think it's important context. So in 2014, around then, um, young adult fiction as a community got very concerned with diversity and there was a reason for this. There had been a survey released that showed that um, there was just like really no representation for either uh, marginalized characters or more importantly for marginalized authors, like non-white, non-straight. YA like publishing itself is basically dominated by white ladies, straight white ladies. So Mm -hmm. there was this big push to try and, you know, improve the diversity of the that space, you know, to get more and different stories being told by more and different kinds of people, and that was great. But as is so often the case with these things, it eventually evolved into um, a sort of uh, a hammer that some people who were who were good at the internet and who had influence in the community were using to just kind of like... Um, <laughs> metaphorically beat to death people that they didn't like or or who they perceived as competition or whose careers they wanted to harm. And so by 2016, when everybody was losing their minds over Donald Trump and there was this sort of like burst of censoriousness kind of happening really just like across mm-hmm. all of, you know, all progressive spaces, but especially again in, in YA, um, I noticed that there were people starting to like... Um, circulate petitions to cancel each other's work on the basis that it was harmful. I want to like put that in big scare quotes, harmful. Um, You know, it did failed to kind of toe the line. It wasn't advocating the proper progressive politics. Um, Almost always, this was actually like uh, an overcoat being thrown over some personal beef between the person who was trying to do the canceling and the author who had written the book. Um, But anyway, I made what was apparently the terrible mistake of saying in public that I didn't support the efforts to censor other people's books. I thought it was a strange thing for a community of creative professionals to be doing. And and you
1: said this on Twitter. I said this you this on Twitter. said this. I said this where? on Twitter.
2: It was one tweet. Um, it didn't. I didn't tag anybody. I didn't even name the book in question. I said it's weird to see. Uh, or something like this. I said, it's weird to see a bunch of creative professionals advocating for book banning in the name of social justice. Somebody noticed this. I don't know who. I was really a nobody at the time. I mean, I was an MTV news reporter, but I had like less than a thousand followers on Twitter. So, you know, I was not in a position to really like affect change, but <laughs> somebody noticed this. Um, I was dogpiled for like three days. Everyone was like, shut up, shut up, shut up. Then Donald Trump was elected president and everybody everybody Oof. moved on. Uh, everybody forgot about me, I thought. But apparently something about the fact that I had spoken out or the way I'd spoken out got me on the radar of people in the community who were very concerned about enforcing the kind of orthodoxy. And so, a couple months later, out of nowhere, um, somebody in the community who shall remain nameless started a rumor that I was um, sharing screenshots from a private Facebook group for young adult fiction writers, and also that I was running a sock puppet account that I was using to troll and harass women of color. On Twitter, oh my God, um, which is of course is something that I would definitely do in all the abundant spare time that I have. So, <laughs> um, it, this was like—I mean, it sounds really stupid, it, and it is really stupid. It was—it was like the utmost high school baloney, um, but it, it was really damaging. Um, it wasn't true; it was like verifiably not true, but people just didn't care, and so I was canceled in YA. And um, that was personally very devastating. There was a point at which I thought maybe I was not going to be able to write again ever or write another book. Um, But as a journalist, which I also was – It was super interesting. I was like, what is going on here? Why are people so mad? Because when people are so mad and they don't want you to talk about something, it usually means that there's something under a rock somewhere that's really, really worth talking about. And that was when I started to look into what was going on in the community. I started reporting this story. I pitched it to Vulture. They liked the idea. And for the next, like, um, I want to say like four months or so, I, I worked on on reporting this out, I interviewed a lot of people and I ended up writing the toxic drama of YA Twitter. And and before
1: we get to that, and and I want you to talk a little bit about what that story was because it was really interesting. You know, I'm so struck by the fact that people are tearing you down and you have like a thousand followers. Do you think this is around the um part of this derives from the idea that so many people wanna um write young adult fiction like there was just this incredible glut of people that wanted that career and so knocking other people out uh came with that advantage and this was like a way to get people out of the way I just remember several years in the in the aughts I would say where like every writer I met seemed to be wanting to write in young adult fiction like it was the the was the number one thing. And and this is all in the wake of like Twilight and Hunger Games and uh, Harry Potter, of course.
2: Yeah, yeah. I call it peak YA. And that was the moment at which I was writing YA too. It was just, it was yep. very exciting. It seemed like there was a lot of opportunity. There was lots of money to go around. Every time somebody made a like, a movie, an adaptation of something in Hollywood. It was always a YA novel. Yeah, that was like Twilight, Hunger Games, the Divergent series, um, you know, all of this stuff. The Fault in Our Stars. John Green was like a superstar millionaire, you know, with like screaming fangirls following him everywhere. It was just a moment. And I do think that... The point at which things started to get really ugly in the community is also the point at which that moment had passed and things were starting to contract a little bit. And I have this theory that um, when it comes to like, for lack of a better word, cancel culture stuff, it's sort of the lower the stakes, the higher the drama. Um, and so, totally. yeah, you know, yes, there's this real yes, crabs yes. in a bucket thing going on. Yeah. I do think that, you know, I don't know if I represented competition for the people who were going after me. I didn't write the same kind of work that they did. I don't think, you know, I, I had so much less influence than they did, but something about me, I guess was spooky to them.
1: Mm. Yeah. So the toxic, Twitter wars, YA Twitter wars that you wrote for Vulture. Can you briefly tell us that story of what happened in, in, in yeah, that tale? sure.
2: So that was just um, a, a sort of a holistic look using this one book, The Black Witch, as a case study uh, at how people go about creating these campaigns to cancel books and sort of what drives them and what people think about them or what thought about them at the time. Um, And so this book, the black witch, it was like a, a very kind of normal YA fantasy. It was like a lot of these books are, it was really kind of a, like an anti-racist book. It was about a a girl who, who has been brought up, um, in, a, I don't know, there's like this caste system in her world that's full of like fairies and wolfmen and witches and mermaids and stuff. And so she's part of like the upper crust there. Um, and she's been taught that everybody who's not like her is inferior. But then she ends up going to I don't know, magic school or something. It's been a while since I was, you know, immersed in, sure. in this story. And she ends up discovering that actually um, these people she's been taught were less than are very interesting and very worthy. And then she joins the revolution to, you know, to overthrow the the world that she lives in. Um, so somebody uh, posted a 9,000-word review of this book saying that it was the most (sighs) racist, offensive book she'd ever read. And this was because in the context of this story about racism being bad, sometimes you had racist characters saying racist things. And this was perceived as like, I don't know, you know, it it was depicted, hence it must be endorsed by the author. Right. You know, it's like, baby brain levels of of critical analysis um but that was that was where this ball got rolling and what ended up happening was that there was this huge campaign to cancel the book there were petitions circulating there was like a review bombing on goodreads people started one-starring it even though nobody had read it um The Mm -hmm. most interesting thing to me was that this is a book for teenagers, um, but of course in YA, a lot of the people reading and of course all the people doing the writing are adults. And what you had was this very interesting phenomenon where teenagers who were slightly more independent-minded would say, well, I heard this book was bad, but I want to read it for myself to make up my own mind. And adults in the community would be like... That means you're a racist, you're a Nazi, you're disgusting, how dare you? So you had like teens being bullied by these middle-aged women for wanting to read a book um and yeah you know i just i wanted to i wanted to understand this phenomenon myself so i spent a lot of time talking to people in the community talking about the effect it was having on writers talking about what the future for young adult fiction might be given the prevalence of this type of kind of rhetoric i did not necessarily expect that it was going to break into the mainstream the way that it ultimately did but it did
0: so a question so we know that these things burn hot and fast sometimes and we pass and the zeitgeist changes and it's something else. Has that sort of campaign, which was somewhat sustained, I mean, it was a couple of years we were hearing a lot about this and also, of course, adult books This happening too. Do you think it sort of kicked a hole in the side of YA that it changed it forever moving forward? Or at least the mainstream stuff because, of course, people are publishing things on their own platforms and creating other ways and people are going to write. But yeah. How, did it change it for good? For good,
2: I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's any such thing as for good in in the arts yeah. or in the publishing industry. There's always going to be a next thing. But it certainly did remake the, the genre completely. I mean, for a while in there, every time somebody sold a YA novel, it was like – a non like Duck. a non-binary <laughs> fairy and uh yeah. you know a queer black wolf man uh met at a voting booth and you know and fell in love. Like it was it was like that. Everything became very self-consciously woke for lack of a better word. And I don't know, I, I'm very curious about this because as I understand it kids are not really reading these books or really interested in these books. This was one of these things where you have people in the community writing for each other rather than for a broader audience. Mm -hmm. Um, But because YA is so insular in that way and sort of uniquely so because of course the people it's aimed at like – they don't buy books. They don't have money. They don't got jobs. Um, so you have adults, you know, who are sort of driving the sales and um, driving the zeitgeist, which much more so than in the adult fiction world is really dependent on things like library sales and also on things like awards. So you can get this community that's kind of like creating its own little bubble of, of what is what is being produced there that has very little to do with what actually sells.
0: Do you think your experience and also the experience of watching this pushed you to write more adult fiction than YA? I think
2: it certainly didn't hurt. I think there are reasons why I would have ultimately wanted to leave the YA world. I think, you know, the the way that that Space kind of evolved as I was just describing, where, you know, the books just, you know, what was being sold, what was being written, it just became different. And that's fine. Um, It just wasn't what I was interested in writing. I was always more interested in writing stuff that was a little dark and a little weird and more literary. And so um, I I did have aspirations always of migrating to adult fiction where you can be like a little edgier. But um, I think I would have maybe stayed for at least one more book. Uh, which ended up not being possible after I was sort of thrust out of the community.
0: Uh, it's interesting because sometimes the uh, what you hear from people that are sort of, for lack of a better phrase, like pro-cancellation, they're like, well, you know, all these people that complain that they got canceled, look at them. They're all gone on to have like these big careers. And it's like, well, Sometimes it's true but the reason is because you took what was going on and you said I'm going to take 4 months and I'm going to look into this. I'm going to write about it. Like that is a, you know, you you put a thrust and energy and intellectuality into work so you get where you're going to go despite people really saying that they want you to go away. Now they've gone on and they'll they'll try to uh, to uh, to do the same thing to somebody else.
2: Yeah, it's true. And I mean I I fought like hell to, you know, to get back to a place where I was able to also write fiction again and, and sell books again. And, you know, I'm very grateful to my agent who stood by me and, you know, believed that I could still have a career after this. Uh, but it, it took a while, you know, I, I wrote my last YA novel that came out in 2014 and my first adult novel came out in 2021. So that's some time, seven years.
0: Did you think that there was any sort of like scuttlebutt in the industry? Like, well, we're going to stay away from her. In, you know, we, we oh in know YA for sure. I
2: mean my, my yeah, editor yeah. unfollowed yeah. me on Twitter. Like, you know. <laughs> Damn. Damn. Right? It sounds so dumb. It all sounds so oh. dumb, but like it it was it was that kind of world. Um I think that at this point though, especially, you know, in the adult world, the fact that I do have a reputation for sticking my neck out um and for you know for being willing to talk about stuff like this. I think that it that at this point it really works in my favor. So yeah.
1: Yeah, it does. I mean I'm I'm wondering like I'm I'm thinking a little bit about um you know in 2017 when you wrote that piece, I mean like you said, you know, this, this, so this is a year into Donald Trump and like from a journalism standpoint, it was um it, it was a scary time to be writing about a lot of the, these things. Um, I wonder if you had anxiety about writing about that publicly um, or if you saw this as an opportunity. I mean, you were getting out of this kind of world where you had been canceled and, and maybe you didn't have as much of a self-consciousness around what you were and weren't supposed to say in, in the world of journalism.
2: I mean, I understood that I was taking a risk by reporting on this. I knew for sure that people, you know, were not going to be happy about being written about, you know, they were doing all this stuff in public, but they didn't want people to know that they were doing it. Um, And so, but I mean, but after that piece came out, it was, it's still probably the most viral thing I've ever written. And so, you know, I did understand that there was, a huge audience that wanted to read about this stuff, even if there was also a very vocal and influential contingent of people kind of in media who didn't want it to be written about. Um, And this is where I'm fortunate that I've never really been a media insider. I've always been on the fringes. I've always been Mm -hmm. a freelancer. And at that time, you know, it's not like I really had a career to salvage you know I thought for a while you know that if this didn't work out I was just gonna have to become a full-time yoga instructor uh which I'm grateful I didn't have to do because it's exhausting but um yeah you know I, I I just I don't know like It's interesting because obviously there is a lot of pressure in journalism circles to not say certain things. But if you're not part of those circles professionally or socially, then all you're really aware of is this audience of people who are desperate to read balanced writing, you know, who are desperate to find out what's going on.
0: I I can say that when I had my own kind of time in the cancellation barrel, I knew that the only way I could tried to salvage whether it was my husband's business which got to really work out or my own reputation was to write the only way out is to write that's it that's the only real like power you have you can't fight people on Twitter and try to get this so and then the work you do realize like you're just saying there are people desperate to listen to some sort of balance or um, your perspective on this and it it sort of works like you then move your way forward just through continuing to and look at work. you now You've got a piece in the Free Press. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. There we go. <laughs> well, obviously, Barry's had her time in the barrel, too. So, you know, so.
1: And at some point, you become a columnist for Unheard. Oh. And God. a couple things. One is, how would you describe your beat there?
2: I think I write about the intersection of pop culture with culture and with politics. Does that make sense? I mean, I just, Mm -hmm. I like to say culture writer because I, you know, I was more like I was an entertainment writer. So I've always been interested in that, you know, in, in, in pop culture. Um, But I'm also very interested in how pop culture exists in conversation with culture, which is like the air we breathe. It's the water we're all swimming in. So yeah, um, that's, that's my beat. Culture is my beat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and for people that don't know Unheard, might not be familiar with it. Can you tell us where that publication comes from?
2: They're English. And um, they are, you know, I'm still trying to get a sense of of what exactly they are. I I think they're sort of a heterodox, maybe centrist. I don't know. They publish a lot of stuff from like differing perspectives. I think that in some ways they're analogous to the free press although maybe they have a little more commentary on their site and less reporting but yeah you know as as i understand it they wanted to create something that would you know fill this space fill that need for um you know thoughtful nuanced not especially partisan reporting does that or or analysis cultural analysis does that make sense
0: I think Mm. that's true. I think they're very, I think they're very eccentrist for lack of a better word. Like they're, they're not sort of shouting from either, you know, edge of the arena. Um, They're being very smart about issues that are like in the news. The thing that you do, Kat, which I, I just so admire is like something's happening in the culture. Like it happened two days ago and then Kat's got a big piece about it. She's got 2000 words on it where it's like, really smart, and really balanced and bringing things in. It's also funny, it can be a little cutting. And they, you know, it's it's I I think the writing on on Hurt is almost always really good. And um they are kind of voice of sanity. Um I, heterodox is always such a weird word to me, but I guess they are. And um you are amazingly fast at doing these pieces. How do you how does it, is it just does it just bubble up like you hear something going on and you're just like bubble 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 bubble. <laughs> I've got to write this. Is that how it works, or is it just like you have deadlines and you gotta um, do it?
2: I mean, I have a great editor who uh, helps me develop ideas, so she's very valuable. Freya Sanders, shout out to her. Um, God bless her. Yeah, shout out. she's like she's like twenty seven or something like that. You know, just amazing, <laughs> amazing energy from her. Um, and but uh, I mean, once I have, once I know what I'm saying, um, I find and maybe this is just because I've been doing it for a while now, like the act of kind of thinking my way through an outline for a piece is soothing to me in the way that like chopping vegetables to make dinner is. It's, it activates that same part of my brain mm. where I'm like,
0: I'm organizing things.
2: <laughs> mm.
0: Oh, I love what are, our. our, our- sort of our catch line here is structure equals freedom here at smoke if you got them if you've got that structure you can you can do the piece that I remember of yours so well that I think about all the time I don't remember the name of it but I remember you were talking about how these sort of movements become sort of you know fly by night in a sense and you were talking about how um, you know the BLM sign gets replaced with the Ukrainian flag and I've just in my reporting and in my traveling I've just seen that so much. When people really don't have stakes in the game, but they want to seem like they do. I just want to, one of my favorite pieces of yours, I can't remember, can you tell me what it was called? Maybe we'll- I don't know. I mean,
2: the thing about being a columnist is you end up writing kind of like the same thing over and over again. So that could be (laughs) one of like a few different pieces. I mean, like I'm very interested in- you know, to the point of obsession where I have to be careful that I'm not like trying to fit everything into this theory of everything that I've got. Um, but I'm very interested in social trust. And I think that we're in a moment where it's eroding mm-hmm. in ways that are not great for us as a country, as a culture. Um, and this kind of flash in the pan activism where we latch to things and where it's frequently less about a given cause. It's not about being for something. It's usually about being against something. It's like, I found somebody to hate and I'm going to hate this person really hard.
0: Hello, Smokin' you have listeners. If you are hearing this, that means you have just listened to the free portion of our, oh, I don't know, bi-weekly episodes with Sarah Heppler. Sarah Heppler, who's just so busy right now. She could not record this little, uh, interim moment for you. Um, We're happy to have you here as a free subscriber. If you'd like the entire episodes, please go over to smokeempodcast.substack.com and sign up and subscribe. Then you will get the full episodes every week, plus some special things we drop for you on the weekends and our monthly, our first Sunday Zooms. Again, to get the full fig, that is smokeempodcast.substack.com. Thanks.